Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Tram Bryant. Chucky? Chuckles? Chucks? Chucks are whatever. Chuck Tran's new. I had a I had something that I was working on in my head, but it got pushed out by the eight million other things that I have to keep in my working memory. Another nickname or Yeah. It was a good one too. I think it was gonna it was really gonna knock everyone's socks off. Chocolate? No. Yeah. She's getting uh she's getting a lot freer with the laughs these days, huh? Either that or she's moving her chair closer and closer. <laughs> or she's on L O L cats right now and <laughs> right. we're just not She's not even listening. Yeah. Um, Chuck. Yes. We're talking about addiction today. That's right. Do you remember in the, uh, is science phasing out sleep podcast, which strangely enough comes out today on the day we're recording it, but this will be released like yeah. five weeks later. You talked about recording this. Uh, yeah. We talked about doing addiction and mm-hmm. lo and behold, here it is. So really, if you think about it, we are on track in real time, but in podcast release publishing time it, it seems like there's a big lag true but we're giving people what they want right that's right addiction or what we want did you like this article uh yeah did you know that uh, there are many stories about addiction in our society today <laughs> yeah wasn't this like the most rigid article of mine you've ever read oh you wrote this yes i'm just kidding dude it was um i went back when i read it i was like it was very scientific sounding like you it could have been on the national institutes of health website and it was um, very bland. And there was one thing I remember going back reading. I didn't pull the trigger on. Um, we're talking about addiction and researching uh-huh. it uh, compared to our views of addiction, like even 20, 30 years ago, like in the 80s. Right. God, can you believe that was like 30 years ago, 1980? Crazy. Yeah. Um, that whole Nancy Reagan just say no campaign scared the bejesus out of a lot of people. Oh, yeah. But Me it included. also had uh, a very negative impact as well. In that it so grossly over-exaggerated the effects and the addictiveness of drugs yeah. that for kids who were, I guess, uh, gutsy enough to go ahead and try the drugs that they've been warned against, <laughs> gutsy. <laughs> once they tried them and found out that they weren't, you know, they didn't turn into like a, a donkey, right? Uh, as Nancy Reagan told them they would, sure. Then um, they were like, "Well, I wonder what other drugs are going to do." You know, they get a little more bold and courageous. So, are you saying that the "Just Say No to Drugs" campaign may have had the reverse effect on people who actually tried drugs? Mm-hmm. That's making exactly them what I'm saying. And it's not just me saying that. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, consensus in the addiction um, field, uh, which is you know multidisciplinary. Yeah. Um, that. This just say no campaign or any campaign that over exaggerates the effects of drugs sure. and deviates from a, a straight science based reporting of what uh, addictive substances can do to you um, can have a negative impact, a Absolutely. reverse effect. Well, you you'd think we would have learned our lesson from uh, reefer madness back in the day. You you would definitely think so. You know that whole dope fiend thing. Yeah. Chuck, it's funny that you bring up uh, reefer madness and the dope fiend thing because that was the way for a period that people looked at addicts. It was a major character flaw. Right. Right? But before that... It was just no big deal. Well, there was no such thing right. as addiction up until like the late 18th century. It was called How Things Are. Exactly. Did you see <laughs> that little uh, thing I sent you about the um, 
the uh, funeral of a Boston minister's wife in 1678. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to read it, was it? So there's this really cool paper, if you ever have um, some time to kill, which sure. I know you never, ever, ever do. <laughs> but uh, it's a 32-pager by a guy named Harry G. Levine called The Discovery of Addiction, colon, Changing Conceptions of Habitual Drunkenness in America. What year? It sounds really boring. I think it's like 1978. But um, this guy's tracing the history of addiction. Uh-huh. And he's saying, like, prior to the 18th century, the end of the 18th century, there was no such thing. Like, people drank right. because they wanted to get drunk. Sure. Right? Um, so in 1678, people in America drank their faces off, Chuck. E.g., at the funeral of a Boston minister's wife, mourners consumed 51 and a half gallons of wine. Wow. And think How about it. How many mourners? I, oh, how many could there be? It's 1678 in Boston. There's like 50 people who aren't like Native American in, <laughs> right. in the, the continental United States or what would become. Well, there. maybe there were 51 and a half people and they drank a gallon <laughs> maybe each. Maybe so. Uh, and then, uh, at the ordination, not, not a funeral, an ordination of Reverend Edwin Jackson of Woburn, Massachusetts, guests drank six and a half barrels of cider, 25 gallons of wine, two gallons of brandy, and four gallons of rum. Wow. Yeah. And that was just for the guy becoming a minister. You know, our Boston listeners right now are like, that's right. They're like, whoa, that's wicked <laughs> awesome. For it's a wicked historical visit. facts. So, and then in the 18th century, there was, everybody's just drinking, drinking, drinking for fun. Then in the 18th century, some people are like, you know what? I kind of have to have four gallons of brandy. Right. Help me. Yeah. And then we started to get this idea that there was such a thing as addiction. But it wasn't the person. It was on the substance, right? Yeah, it's uh, the absinthe or the opium. You know, those were like the drugs of choice back in the day. Right. That's the problem. Those things are evil and they're bad. Right. And um, actually, opium addiction was so widespread. Did you see that little sidebar? I did not. Uh, opium addiction, opium was everywhere, right? Like you could get it in any kind of tincture or tonic for any kind of malady sure. whatsoever. Um, and so many middle-aged women became hooked on morphine and opium. That it was seen in the late 19th century as a woman's problem. Oh, like really? PMS or menopause. Interesting. That's how people viewed addiction for a while. Huh. But it went from the substance to the person, the character flaw, the dope fiend, right? Well, I thought it went from the person to the substance. No, it went from the, I'm sorry, the substance to the person. Right. So it went from, it's the problem of the substance to the problem of the person. It's a character flaw, they're a dope fiend. And then finally, we arrive at the idea that addiction is um, a, a disease, a chronic disease, and the, a person who is addicted is a sufferer, not a fiend. And that's where we are now, for the most part. Right, but we still don't fully understand addiction. We have a pretty good view of it, right? I feel like a lot of things with the human body we explain, we always lead in with like they sort of know, but they sort of don't. Well, it's that it's that point where all the pieces are on the table. We just haven't put them all together. Remember? Do you know why, Josh? Why? Because the human body is a miracle. It's a big, mysterious miracle. Nice. I mean, when you think about it, really, (laughs) about all the things going on in the brain and the body and the fact that, you know, it's wrapped up in bones and skin. Yeah, that sounds like intelligent design to me. Well, (laughs) there you have it. Do you remember your theory of what happened to the Neanderthals? Uh, didn't I say they froze? No, it got got thirsty. Yeah, they got hot and thirsty and they died. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chuck. I stand by that. So the whole point of addiction is it hijacks the brain's uh, reward system, right? Yeah, the limbic system, and that's exactly what it does, Josh. Uh, 
when you are, you know, born and you're a human being, <laughs> you learn very quickly that, you know, you have to survive by eating and sleeping and, and taking care of yourself. And that's because it triggers the limbic system into shooting a little dopamine out. And your body says, hey, I like that. I need to do that again. Right. And that's what drugs do, except they do it two to ten times as much. And it's it's false. It's right. fake. Dopamine's like the doggy treat of anything with a brain. Yeah, so if you get, can get ten doggy treats yeah, um, immediately just, you know, instead of the something. one, then you take it. And then your brain says, boy, this is great. I could get used to this. Right. And, and it does. Right. And since we learn, we're pretty much hardwired to learn from that release of dopamine to repeat that behavior, like reproduce or exercise or eat. Yeah. Um, we, if we're getting 10 times that amount, we pick it up even quicker. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, okay, well, this crack cocaine makes me feel really good, so I'm going to try that. We need it more. Right. And when it goes away, it makes things a lot worse than just, oh, I'm sleepy because I didn't get enough sleep. Well, we should say also that um, the the current view of addiction, uh, the, the brain disease model, yeah. right, um, states that just because you try something doesn't mean you're going to become addicted. The process or addiction is a process. Right. And a person goes from a user, crosses a threshold at some point, uh, and becomes an addict. So a yeah. user and an addict are not synonymous. No, no. They, no. they exist on two different parts of the spectrum of addiction or spectrum of substance use and yeah. abuse, right? Use and abuse. That's the, those are the two different words. Right. So, uh, well, you summed up the, um, I guess the, the way that Addiction works pretty succinctly, Chuck. Well, it becomes physically addictive, basically. You develop a dependency on this shot of dopamine, this huge shot of dopamine, mm-hmm. and your body needs it all of a sudden. So then you, you know, you lose control. Right. And we should say that, um, uh, uh, drugs generally, like all drugs of addiction, um, hijack the reward system. Yeah. We've talked about other drugs, I can't remember in some other podcasts, that don't necessarily work the dopamine. Therefore, it, they don't necessarily produce addictive properties. Right. Right? Um, but those that do hijack dopamine transmitters, they st- either stimulate dopamine's release and or they bind to dopamine receptors and right. prevent its reuptake. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So you got a bunch of dopamine release and you got a bunch of it staying in between your synapses longer. Right. And then, like you said, you become dependent on that. You want that... Well, your brain does without, even if you don't even uh, know this is going on, Mm -hmm. your brain is saying to your body, you need to go out and get more of that because that was really awesome. Right, because your reward system is, uh, it's, it's there to motivate us to do stuff or to, or to do stuff since it's the reward system. So yeah, like you said, um, your, your, uh, priorities become reprioritized and drugs get to the fore or whatever that substance or behavior is, right? Well, yeah, you always hear um, like the hardcore abusers of um, heroin or cocaine. It, it literally, they say, it overtakes your life to where your job is to every day get the money that you can find the drug and find the drugs right. so you can use the drugs. Right, it's full time deal. And so you've got uh, you've got the hangover withdrawal. That's where your dopamine. Um, Basically, your brain's like, okay, uh, right. I sense that something artificial is going on, so I'm going to stop producing as much, and you're going to have to go through a horrible little period. That's the withdrawal or hangover, right? Then you've got physical dependency, and at, a bo- at about this point, you've crossed over into addictive 
being an addict. Yeah. You're not a user anymore once you have physical dependency. Um, and that's where, because your brain's not producing that dopamine naturally any longer, and you, right. the, the withdrawal or the hangover is so bad that you can't stand it, you will do more. And at that point, you're like Krusty the Clown with moon rocks. Right. You're just getting back to normal. Yeah. You know? Now you're physically dependent. That's like, that's the key. I'm not sure if that's getting through to all, because I can picture people out there looking concerned and bewildered right now. Your brain actually stops producing dopamine. Mm-hmm. If it's getting it, you know, the, in an unnatural way, it goes, you know what, I don't need to make it anymore. Right. Well, there's enough of it out there floating around already. It's just so messed up. You're literally tricking your brain into mm-hmm. doing something that it should be doing naturally. Right. And that's why uh, with a lot of drugs, getting high, getting that high uh, is harder and harder and harder and harder. Sure. Well, or easier. There's that flip yeah. side, too, which I thought was interesting. It is, and I don't fully understand it. I don't, I don't feel bad because I don't think science fully understands it either. But right. that's two symptoms of physical addiction. Um, either you need more right. to get high or you need far less than you ever did before. I would think if you're an addict, you'd, <laughs> you'd want to choose the second yeah. one. <laughs> you'd be like, man, I can get high off of $2 worth of heroin exactly. rather than 10 like I used to need. Unfortunately, you don't get that choice, though. No. Um, now, because of this because your brain has been basically hijacked by this drug, uh, and I hate—I I guess we probably shouldn't anthropomorphize drugs, not actually hijacking anything, but because your brain's reward system has been reprioritized to yes. serve this drug. Ugh, thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> the the whole point of treating addiction, and I actually wrote a companion article on this, how rehab works. It was pretty interesting. Um, was that based on your experience in rehab? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> not true. Um, the, uh, the point of treating addiction is in most cases to just completely discontinue use, which is called abstinence, right? Yeah. For most all addiction, abstinence is the way to go. Except for, of course, like eating addictions and stuff like that. Right. And, uh, sex addiction. Yeah. They don't want you to never have sex again. No. We'll get to that. I have a problem with sex addiction. Okay. Not, I have a problem, but (laughs) I have a problem with everyone saying all these athletes are sex addicts because they cheat on their wives. Oh, yeah. I would think that it's probably the most exploited addiction ever. Yeah, for sure. So, Josh, we're talking about addiction. What are some of these symptoms of addiction? How do you know if you're an addict? Uh, well, there's two types. Yes. The, there's, uh, physical and behavioral. And I should say those two types are specific to substances of abuse, right? Yeah. You can have and or physical or behavioral if you're doing like coke or heroin or right. drinking with behavior behavioral addictions like compulsive gambling. behaviors mm-hmm. it's just behavioral but that right. doesn't mean it's any less addictive you're, the no. person's any less addicted or harmful to you know your life right but we said uh, one of the one of the physical symptoms is that you either need more or less of the drug right that's right um those, that's a physical symptom then there's a lot of stuff that you could easily guess um, trouble sleeping, sweating, uh, hand tremors, nausea, physical agitation. Yeah. That's if you don't have the substance in your body. Right. Those are the withdrawal symptoms. Basically, your body's telling you, like, go do more. Yeah. Because we don't feel good right now. And you get that from everything from alcohol to uh, cigarettes to caffeine. Mm-hmm. Caffeine headaches are supposed to be pretty bad. Right. I've heard, like, I've heard people that try to kick Diet Coke. It can be pretty awful. I've... um. I, I've had caffeine headaches before. They're not that bad, but I, really? I have heard of people who really suffer from them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the physical, uh, the physical stuff, really, it's using more or less, or just using to get back to normal. Right. That's physical addiction, and then you know anything that that happens to your body as a result of 
using or abusing a drug, yeah, that's physical. Yeah, behavioral, which is also called psychological symptoms, um, is the stuff that happens to your life, basically. Right. So, and, like, what are they? Well, it's um, you may have tried to quit doing whatever this behavior is, whether it's gambling or overeating or sex, mm-hmm. and uh, you're not able to. So that's one of the traits. Yeah. So you're not going to have much success there. Uh, or maybe you spend more time doing it where to the point where it's like, you know, you might lose your job uh-huh. or go broke mm-hmm. or something like that. Those are all behavioral traits. Yeah. What it, else? Uh, well, you, um, basically you're still using the stuff even though you know it's having a harmful impact on you or yeah. your life or others. Or you might stop doing stuff that's good for you. Like I used to be a jogger, but then, uh, my sex addiction became so great I don't even jog anymore. Right. Now I just have sex. Right. All the time. And play professional football. <laughs> Um, and Chuck, uh, because of this, this brain disease model that we talked about, uh, because of these, of these symptoms, um, the view of addiction as it stands today, the most widely held model is the brain disease model. Yeah. And the basis of that is that addiction is a chronic disease, right? Right. So as such, just like, say, asthma or tuberculosis or whatever, you're going to have flare-ups. Yeah, relapse. Right. Yeah, it's a relapse with addiction. Mm -hmm. And so if you go into treatment, you need to have like booster sessions as well after you're cured or clean or whatever. Well, yeah, that's sort of the basis of AA, right? You still got to go to those meetings. Right. Which is why I think it's so radically successful. That and the LSD in the coffee. Right. (laughs) That should be out by now, I think. Yeah. Otherwise, people can go, what? (laughs) I need to get to AA. I had an AA joke, but I'm not going to tell it. That's good, Chuck. <laughs> We're, we've both grown up so much, haven't we? Yes, in the past 30 minutes. Uh, what else we got here, Josh? Um, <laughs> behavioral psychologists, they used to think that, I thought this was really interesting. They s- sort of understand addiction a little bit, but they used to think that if you just tried drugs in the first place, drugs or alcohol or any kind of addictive substance, then there was just something wrong with you. But there's actually genetic basis for even that. Not even whether or not you get addicted, but whether you try it to begin with. Well, yeah, it's not just that. Like, genetics is one of a number of risk factors. There's also, like, your susceptibility to peer pressure, yeah. your feelings of self-worth at that moment or at sure. that period in your life. Um, there are, like, if you have anxiety or depression, that's been shown to increase the likelihood that you're going to try drugs. Yeah. Um, so it's not just, like... A kid's like, yeah, I'm, I'll try this. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, that, that's how it, they used to see it. Now they see it as like, no, there's some, there's some other, yeah, uh, comorbid factors going on. It's both nature and nurture. So like a good example would be like, um, if you start having sex to increase your sense of self-worth, that could lead to a sex addiction. That, right. That low self-esteem would be a risk factor that led you into your sex addiction, right? Right. Or if you're depressed and you just self-medicate. Right. Or if you tried drugs and you're like, wow, I really, really like these. (laughs) That's another one for sure. Right. So we were talking about um, physical and behavioral symptoms, right? Um, uh, Again, under the current brain disease model of addiction, um, basically the double whammy is um, psychological dependence. Yeah. Uh, because, Which can be just as bad. Right. Because it has not only an effect on the person, it has effect on uh, the society as well. Yeah. So like, the person's life can be ruined by addiction. Sure. But they may also commit crime to feed their addiction. Right. Or they break up their family on a personal level. Or both. Or commit violence. Right. 
other acts so of malfeasance. The the worst the worst one is psychological or behavioral. Yeah, for sure. Which makes both substances of abuse and compulsive behaviors, addictive behaviors, um, equally bad. Well, yeah, and what that means is is you can't say uh, you can't be one of these hardliners that just says. You know, if someone wants to go out and kill themselves on dope, then that's their business. Right. Well, yeah. Because there's a lot of other things going on. It's a great argument against it. But other impacts. Right. But is prohibition the answer? Well, it certainly wasn't with alcohol, was it? <laughs> no, it did not work. You know why? Because no one stopped drinking. <laughs> yeah. Prohibition didn't really go over too well. So, Chuck, you want to talk about some specific drugs and behaviors that people get addicted to? Yeah. We've talked about meth a little bit and what a uh, stupid thing that is to try. Right? What, what, what was that in? Our big anti-meth rant. I think it was when we did the meth labs, crime scene cleanup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, methamphetamines, um, the good news is the use is going down, it looks like. Yeah, which surprises me. Yeah. I would have thought it would you think? be steady or still going up. Well, maybe people are starting to realize it. It's not very smart. Yeah. Uh, but they uh, actually studied brain patterns, Josh, of long-term meth users, and they, they found that 50%, up to 50%, of their dopamine-producing cells were damaged or just shot. Yeah. So you literally, I mean, I don't know if they can regenerate, do you? That remains to be seen. Remember, there's really? that whole study on MDMA that got it oh, outlawed right. in the first place about serotonin levels being able to regenerate. Right, right. I don't know. I, I don't I don't think anybody knows yet if we're capable of doing that. We've not been studying it long enough, I think. Let's, let's get some stats going, too, while we're doing these. But, yeah, I was going to say, um, what's... what's um, encouraging about meth prevalence is that it's cut in half uh people who have used it in the past month um has gone down from 731,000 in 2006 and this is in the US uh-huh. to 314,000 in 2008 that's half of what it was yeah that's great that's significant in 2 years sure. that kind of dropped so yeah i would say that the anti meth campaigns are working or they're all dying yeah <laughs> Which is possible. Yeah. Uh, what's next? Prescription drugs. Now, those are on the rise. Yeah, they're probably the most abused drug in the United States because everybody's on them. There's a huge problem with the uh, elderly population. Right. Basically getting hooked on meds. Sure. There's a huge problem with the um, adolescent population, basically getting hooked on their grandparents' meds. Um, and there's been a fourfold increase in people checking into rehab who are on prescription medications right. uh, within the 21st century, within the first decade. Four four times as many as there were before. Um, and in 1998, right, 2.2% yes. of people seeking treatment uh, for any kind of drugs right. were on prescription drugs. Josh, also with the, the, the scripts, as I like to call them, oh, yeah? prescription drugs, in 1998, 2.2% of people seeking treatment um, reported abusing the pain relievers. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, 10 years later, 10% reported abuse. Right. And that's just among people who are seeking treatment. I mean, like I can supposedly need it. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why prescription drugs are so abused is because, well, they're legal, technically. And they're socially accepted in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, people don't look at them as like a blanket drug. They look nah. at them as all these different little drugs, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, Robert Downey Jr. used heroin, so he was, you know, this lawless uh, scoundrel. But Chandler Bing gets hooked on back pills mm-hmm. because he had a bad back. From and it's, yeah, it's sort of dismissed. Yeah, you know, Jodie Foster said she would never work with Robert Downey Jr. again after... Um, 
Home for the Holidays? Yeah. Was he messed up during that? Yeah, that was right in the middle of it. Yeah. That's a good movie, though. It's a shame. Is it? I never saw it. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's a Thanksgiving movie. You should rent it for Thanksgiving. Speaking of heroin, right? Yes. It um apparently is a lot more socially acceptable than it was before, but it's still pretty much like a junkie is a junkie in the U.S. <laughs> Nobody's like, oh, he's just a junkie. It's like he's a junkie. That's kind of a huge deal. Well, the twenty they say that 23% of uh, people who try heroin become dependent on it. So that's, that's pretty substantial. Yeah, that's about a quarter. But at the same time, it's surprising, though, if you were raised in the 80s, because you would think that 108% of people who try heroin become hooked on it. Yeah, I remember the one big one that they used to say is you, if you try heroin just once, you, you're physically addicted to it. Yeah. That was one of the big uh, yeah. campaigns for Same with crack. They said the same thing about crack. As you well. try it one time and you're addicted. Right. Yeah. Um, the uh, In the U.S., there's actually been something of an increase from 2007 to 2008, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Um from 153,000 people aged 12 and older in the U.S. who said that they'd used heroin in the past month. Really? To uh, 213,000 in 2008. So there has been, I guess that is substantial, especially yeah. if you look at the population of heroin users, that tiny amount. That's kind of, yeah, that's a big increase, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, you got cocaine and crack, sister I drugs. You. Josh, from 2002 to 2008, rates of past month cocaine use among kids declined from 0.6 to 0.4%, which is good. Sure. And it also dropped among young adults, 18 to 25. So it seems like those drugs are sort of on the wane a little bit. Yeah, and and again, if you look at meth, prescription drugs, well, painkillers especially, Mm -hmm. uh, heroin, coke, crack, all of these um, have an effect of targeting your reward center. Oh, yeah. Producing that high, and you're learning to repeat this behavior, right? Yeah. Uh, Again, this can also happen very strongly among compulsive behaviors like sex addiction. And Chuck, before you go off on sex addiction, (laughs) let's say that um, according to the National Association of Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity, uh, the NASAC, obviously, um, there's about 3 to 6% of the American population that suffers from sex addiction, right? From Yeah, which is the real compulsive behavior that's diagnosed. So, Chuck, sex addiction, go. Well, I don't... Clearly, that it, there is such a thing, but it's just so overused. Like you said, you know, Jesse James is a sex addict. It's just, these are men of privilege is what it is. Tiger Woods, Jesse James, <laughs> Brett Favre. Yeah. They're guys that are in the position that they can have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. And a lot of guys will take the opportunity to do it. Doesn't mean they're sex addicts. No. And like you said earlier, I, or we may have even cut it out. I think the bad thing that it does is it it gives them sort of a free pass because they're just helpless to it. Which yeah, is supposedly, a bunch of yeah, yeah, it is really. I mean, basically, it's a. It seems like a defense for poor character. Unless, yeah, exactly. Unless all these guys are in that three to six percent. Right. And again, I think I'm sure that there is like an actual. Sexual addiction. Yeah. Right. Vigo Mortensen had it in 28 days. Yeah. For three to six percent of the people. Right. So, but, and that's sad that there's probably a lot of people out there who need help or who actually are sex addicts and right. people just don't believe them because sure. it's like, you're full of it. I don't believe Brett Favre either. Right. And, and that's Favre. unfounded as of yet. <laughs> Brett Favre is, but. And the other thing with sex addiction too that we should point out is that like many addictions, 
it's not even about the sex anymore. And, and apparently once you are a sex addict, you're not even getting the enjoyment out of it anymore. Yeah, which sucks. Yeah, I would say so. So I think, like we said, the, the point of sex treatment, sex addiction treatment, uh, is to restore the person back to a point where they can enjoy sex yeah. without being addicted to it. So it's not abstinence, sure. it's having a healthy sex life. Right, and the same goes with uh, binge eating disorders, uh, which is about 1% to 3% of people have a binge eating disorder. In the general population. Right. If you're obese or you seek weight loss treatment or help with eating, yeah. the, the population is far higher. About a quarter of people who are obese and seek professional help for it are binge have eaters. binge eating disorder. That and it's sense. pretty much what it sounds like. It's like binging and purging, which is bulimia, but without the purging part. Right. Right? Binging and binging. Yes. And uh, gambling, Josh, is another compulsive behavior that I think has risen since internet gambling has become more accessible. Mm-hmm. And another name for uh, gambling compulsion is ludomania. Oh, really? Ludomania. Interesting. Uh, 15 million people, they say, display some sign of gambling addiction. Is that in the U.S., I guess? Yeah. Um, I I think in this article originally it had like 18 million or something like that. No, 2 million. So I guess it's gone up. Because well, that was a recent stat that I looked up today that you just read. Yeah, and I actually looked up one today that said 2.5 million people are gambling addicts. So there may be a variation between a gambling addict and people who... Display some sign of gambling addiction. I guess so. Alcohol, Josh. We haven't even talked about that yet. Uh, no, we haven't. I got some stats for you. And these are staggering because alcohol is the one. I mean, most of these other things we talked about, aside from the prescription drugs or illicit drugs that you have to, you know, get illegally. But alcohol is the one that you can buy at the corner store. And not surprisingly, it's the biggest problem. Yeah, I'm glad you found this, too, because I had trouble finding some stats. So lay them on me, String Bean. Oh, 43% of U.S. adults have had someone related to them who is presently or was an alcoholic. Isn't that crazy? That sounds a lot like the uh, kid who says that you wouldn't know his girlfriend because he met her at camp and she lives in Canada. (laughs) That sounds like that kind of stat. Does it? Uh, Three million U.S. citizens older than 60 abuse alcohol or require it to function normally. And that's going up. Um, You mentioned the... Your grandparents' prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. Grandparents are like the baby boomers now. So as the baby baby boomers have aged into, quote-unquote, the elderly range, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are still alcoholics and pill addicts and, you know, more so than their parents' generation was. Right. Or were. Yeah. What else? You got any more on alcohol? Uh, Yeah, I have a couple of... I mean, I've got a bunch of good ones. I'm seeing which ones are good. Um, uh, Men are three times more likely to be alcoholics than women. Wow. Did you know that? No. It's kind of surprising. And if you are happily married, you only have an 8.9% chance, whereas if you are single or have a bad marriage, you are 30% uh, more likely to become an alcoholic. I can see that. Especially if men are three times more likely to be an alcoholic, I could see uh, somebody's wife saying, like, you need to stop drinking as much. Yeah, exactly. And I've got one more really sad one. Um, 500,000 children age 9 to 12 are alcoholics in this country. They call them the party kids. Oh, really? (laughs) So sad. I always forget about Drew Barrymore. Remember her little... She was an outlier. You think so? Yes. She was the... She was the... Again, Nancy Reagan, 80s. She was the poster child for Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. Yeah, but she was drinking and doing cocaine when she was like 12. Yeah, and she was like the only kid... 
oh. who was in America who was doing those things. Okay, right? I thought you meant that she... And it was like eight, actually, I think, that she was doing coke. And... I got you. I thought you meant that her story was exaggerated. No, I'm okay. just saying, like, like, yeah. like on a graph, she's, like, way out here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you always forget about that now, though, with her, because that was so... Yeah, she's definitely cleaned up. Well, she's cleaned up, and I think she can go out and, like, have a good time now. I don't. I think she had her demons when she was a little kid. Yeah. Which I can't imagine being a kid and being an alcoholic. Yeah. You know? You know, that's the second podcast in, I'd say, this month that she's <laughs> come up in. Yeah. Yeah, Roller Derby and then this one. Yeah. Um. So, Chuck, you have a pill addiction. What's oh, no. the <laughs> Sorry. Oh, we should also say that um physicians tend to see alcohol withdrawal as far more dangerous physically than even heroin withdrawal because of the symptoms it produces. Yeah, they have it pills. Can kill you. We'll talk about, well, should we talk about this now, the pills? Yeah, I was going to say, if, that? if you have a pill addiction, what's the best way to treat that? With more pills. Right. That's the human answer to things. Let's throw a pill at it. And there, we actually have come up with some pills to treat addictive behavior. Yeah. Right? Well, I know they, they, they have one um, called disulfiram, and it's sold under the name Antabuse. Mm-hmm. And that's the one they give you for alcohol that basically you take this pill yeah. and you drink even a little bit, and it makes you feel awful. Yeah. Like you, you basically, it, it does the opposite of your reward circuit. Yeah. It punishes you. Yeah. And you learn the hard way not to drink anymore. And apparently you don't get used to that, so it's not like you can be on this pill and just kind of fight through it. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. No. Uh, there's an, another one called uh, naltrexone. Yeah, I found that one too. And that one's used to treat alcoholism as well. But basically, it just it's an opioid anti- antagonist. Yeah, which means that it doesn't allow alcohol to give you that right. inflated sense of self worth like a gun does. You know. Yeah, I think most of those. <laughs> I think most of those are opi- uh, affect the uh, opiate receptors, right? Yeah, but strangely, so then there's also nalmaphene. That's an opioid antagonist, just uh-huh. like uh, naltrexone. So they should both be able to treat alcoholism. Right. But strangely, naltrexone has shown most promise in treating alcoholism. Nalmaphene has been shown uh, has shown the most promise in treating gambling addictions, even though they're the same type of drug. You know what else they use that for? What shopaholics? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that's. I think what- it just cuts down on the thrill, right? Yeah, I guess so. Any sort of compulsive behavior like that, it looks like it might target. Yeah. Interesting. It is interesting. Uh, and then, of course, you can just uh, go after the genes, right? Yeah, they're they're coming a long way in targeting genes. And, and what they don't think at this point is that there's like a single gene that they can find. They think right. it's probably like a combination of yeah, genes. And it's probably also largely epigenetic as well, too. Yeah, well, you should explain what that means again, just in case people didn't listen to that one. How could they not have? I know, that was a good one. If you didn't, go listen to Can Your Grandfather's Diet Shorten Your Life. Basically, um, we found through epigenetics that it's, what makes us us isn't just uh, our parents' um, genes contrib- genetic contribution. Yeah. We can actually affect the way our genes work, turning them on and off and amplifying them sure. and um, lowering their 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 frequency. Uh, buy the stuff we do, including drugs, drinking, the way we eat. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything has an effect. Yeah, and the other thing, too, you pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, is not only is, are there gene combinations that make you more susceptible to this, if you're not susceptible to it, it's not like you just are lacking those genes. There are actually genes that make you less susceptible to addiction. Right. So like uh, the ALDH2 gene um, people who have two copies of this gene uh-huh. um, 
don't uh, don't become alcoholics as easily as people who have just one or don't have it at all. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That is very weird. And if you have low neuropeptide Y, which is a hormone, uh-huh. uh, well, if you're a mouse, I should say, right. you're, you're probably <laughs> not going to want the booze as much as your fellow mice. mice. Right. Yeah. Uh, I did find another interesting one, too, about relapse rates. They've even uh, kind of pegged it down to that level. They found that... Um, a variant of the opioid receptor gene ASP40, you have a lower rate of relapse with alcoholism if you have the ASN40. Really? By 26 to 47%. So even if you try to quit, certain genes will say you're more likely to relapse than others. Huh. So just give up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of relapse, there is some uh, interesting Tibet, Tibet, Tibet. Interesting Tibet? That we left out about heroin relapse. What did we say? In 2004, get this, uh, the entrance rate for heroin treatment, right, in the U.S.? Yes. For the fifth time was higher than the entrance for heroin treatment for the first time. I believe that. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's It's really of, hard to kick, I guess. I would think so. But try, try again. Or go watch Train Spotting and never try it in the first place. Yes. I'm or, or... Watch Sister Act 2 while you're high on heroin, and I'll bet that does the same thing. <laughs> that has a similar effect as yeah. trains Oh, I'll bet it's horrific. <laughs> Back in the habit. Yeah. If you want to know more about drugs and addiction in general, um, we strongly recommend you read this strangely um, prim article. Was this I early wrote. on in your career? Yeah, it was pretty early. Yeah, I was a little stiffer back then, too. Uh, it's called How Addiction Works. You can find it by typing that into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And while you're doing that, um, try Rehab, too. Interesting one. Yeah, we, well, we should tackle that at some point, too. Maybe we, we will. <laughs> Something happened to me throughout this podcast. <laughs> Since I said handy search bar, that means, of course, it's time for listener mail. That was the brakes being applied. Okay. Because we have uh, we have a small bit of administrative detail here, Josh, at the, at the onset to plug our um, our new app for the iPhone mm-hmm. that yes. is coming soon. I'm very, very excited about this. I'm playing with it right now because I was lucky enough to get a beta version because I work here. And uh, you can access all of our podcasts, video and audio. You can, uh, when you click on our big dumb faces, you can access... Every single episode we've ever done, mm-hmm. listen to it right there. Mm-hmm. The new episodes pop up automatically. Uh, you can go to our blog through there. You can go to Facebook and Twitter through there. Uh, you can watch our video podcast from our uh, our uh, stuff they don't want you to know and coolest stuff on the planet. Or you can just go back and stare at our faces all day too. You can do that if you want. Yeah. Uh, it's also got a huge, huge repository of articles from the website. Yeah. HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, uh, and they're broken down into um, their chapters as well. They're, it's yeah. really easy to navigate. Like we created uh, a new way to access the site and uh, all of the related content for the iPhone, like uh, for a mobile system. Yeah, they. I mean, they they did an awesome job with the design. I was like, oh, I wasn't sure at first, but it looks really, really awesome, and it's. Like you said, it's easy to work and free. Yes, I'm very excited. I can finally go to sleep when this thing finally comes out. So, looking forward to it. And no more excuses about not being able to listen to our show because if you get the app, you will always be able to listen to the show. Exactly. So you can uh, just uh, enter the app store on your iPhone or go into it via iTunes and download the How Stuff Works iPhone app, free of charge, gratis. 
Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Right. And I'm going to call this an update from Sarah, the amazing 13-year-old fan. Awesome. Yeah, I saw that yesterday. You know, my goal is to eventually do this podcast through graduation for Sarah. And we just have updates from her from the age of 11 yes. to 18. Yeah. That's my goal. I wrote her back. For this. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Jerry, did you? She did not. It's so lame. <laughs> All right. This is from Sarah. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, Chuckers, Josh, Jerry, and Frank the Chair. I haven't chatted with you in a while, so I'm going to tell y'all what's been going on in my world. Uh, School started about two months ago, and believe it or not, I actually like it. Since I'm in the eighth grade now, I feel like no one looks down to me. They didn't really anyway, since I'm five foot eight. She's okay. Crazy? She's five foot eight. Mm -hmm. She's like almost as tall as I am. Uh, This school year will be full of fine arts, which are my favorite. In choir drama, we have been working on Seussical Junior, which is a musical uh, musical based on the works of Dr. Seuss. I'm having a ball in that class. I get to act, sing, and dance, three of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. By the way, y'all are my favorites. Uh, y'all are on my favorites list, too. In honor of this unique musical, I was wondering if you guys and gal would consider doing a podcast on Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Uh, Dr. Seuss. So I, when I wrote her back, I was like, I'll have to run this by Chuck, see what he thinks about it, but I'm totally down with that. Well, we covered him on the uh, webcast. Remember? I know. And, and he was just, I mean, I, lo- I loved him anyway, but mm-hmm. once he really got into his history, he was pretty awesome. So you want to? Yeah, let's do it for sure. Uh, in school, we have a cooking class. In our first class, we made a meal. We have about 10 students in this class, so we split off into three groups. One group, not mine, was assigned to make cookies. They made the batter, but messed up and put a quarter cups of salt in the cookies instead of a teaspoon of salt. That's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, the girls baked the cookies, and when the teacher tried them, she came up with a brilliant idea. We should give them to the 8th grade boys. Let's just say the look on their faces was really hard to describe. It was hilarious watching the boys run to the water fountain. I uh, can't think of anything else to say. Thanks for reading. From Sarah, the now amazing 13-year-old fan. Who started out as the amazing 11-year-old fan. Yeah, that means I'm almost the amazing 40-year-old podcaster. <laughs> so I'm reading this book called The Consumer Republic, uh-huh. um, and I just found out, did you know, that home ec classes are the earnest result of the consumer empowerment movement of the Depression? Really? Yeah. Did you take home ec? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It was one of my favorite classes, actually. That's awesome, actually. It was like, wow, this classroom looks like a house. Yeah. And I like that. And we kind of just get to cut up and make cookies and eat them. Exactly. Did you take shop? I took that one, too. I was much more intimidated in that class. Like wood shop? Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have that. Some schools have a car shop. We never had that. Did y'all have that? Uh, We had one. I never took it. Auto shop? Yeah, those kids could take a car apart and put it back together like that. I wish I would have. Yeah. I wonder how much more I would have liked shop had I been as comfortable then as I am now around people missing a finger. (laughs) I could have been a changed person. I got nothing else. Well, if you have a story about losing a finger, uh, we want to hear it. It better be for real, though. None of this Lou Bega stuff. Uh, wrap it up in an email and ship it post haste to stuff podcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?